the first time I heard it, I said, what? It's, I'm a friend of God. And you know, uh, it was a number of years ago, I was doing, um, I was doing youth work, and we had what we called a youth week, and I, I had a, a friend who was a youth pastor in another church, and I, I asked him to come and share with our teens that week. And I had a, an epiphany moment. He talked about, you know, we, we, I think most of us understand that God loves us. He's supposed to do that. He's our creator. He sent his son Jesus to die for us. God is supposed to love us. But I'm not sure we always think he likes us. <laughs> really. And, and this youth pastor said, yeah, the word says, God, is, we're a friend of God. God likes you. I had never thought of that before. Because I know me. And I think, well, there's some things about me that aren't that likable. And I think I really question, does God like me? But God does like me. He made me like I am. He made you like you are. God loves us. God likes us. We are truly friends of God. Isn't that an amazing thought? And then just a reminder, um, we're going to spend some time after church doing what Nazarenes seem to do really well, and that's eating. And, and we're just going to, uh, I'm going to ask Curtis and Bindi to come up, and we're just going to grill them with some questions. Because I think we're all kind of wondering what's happening in their lives and some things like that. And we, if we need, we can take a moment right now because, you know, tears and food are not that good. So if we need to bow our heads and, you know, weep or even wail out loud. <laughs> My only complaint for their ministry here is that it wasn't long enough. But we rejoice that God is leading them to a place of service where he wants them to be. And I'm sure that um, great things will be happening with the Shady Church of the Nazarene. A day like no other. Um, Dean shared that scripture with us today. Remember those old Western movies on TV? And let me kind of lay the scene for you. The fort is under attack. And, and, and the people are greatly outnumbered by the enemy. And, and the ammunition won't hold out much longer. And things are looking pretty grim. And, and if help doesn't come from somewhere soon, all will be lost. You remember that, don't you? The commander calls for a volunteer to make a dash through enemy lines in an effort to ride for help to another fort that's usually at least a day's ride away. So a brave, young, handsome soldier steps forward. He's given the fastest mount they've got, and he's sent out through the gate at full gallop when the enemy isn't looking or taking a break for lunch or a siesta or something. Who knows what's going on? And of course, he never gets by unnoticed and is pursued in this dramatic, heart-pounding chase and barely escapes. And he reaches his destination after a harrowing journey across desert wastelands and rushing rivers and, and, and over precipitous mountain trails. And his arrival at the other fort finds him spent from exhaustion and thirst and shot in a couple of places. But he makes it. 
And in the next scene, we're back to the fort that was under attack, and we find the, the brave folks in grave peril. They're out of ammo. They've resorted to using their weapons as clubs. The enemy is nearly to break down the, day, the gate, and they're coming over the wall. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat with no hope of victory, when suddenly, in the distance, we hear the sound of the charge blown on the bugle. The cavalry has arrived in the nick of time. And the day is saved. What looked like pure defeat has become victory. Right? Isn't that how it, that's how it worked? Well, that, that, that scene from those Western movies is, is very similar to what we are encountering today in the book of Joshua, chapter 10. Now, I'm pretty sure that when Joshua and the leaders of Israel entered into that covenant with Gibeon, he never suspected that Israelite lives would be put on the line so soon to defend Canaanites. But that's exactly what's happening here. And the chapter opens this morning, and I didn't have Dean read all of it because it's a long chapter. But the chapter opens with Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, organizing an army to come against Gibeon. And it was a large army. He enlisted, he enlisted the help of four other kings and their forces to attack Gibeon. Jerusalem was a city-state with dependent villages and land. And it was probably the neighboring city-state to Gibeon. Remember, it was a confederation of about four cities itself. And so Jerusalem, that city-state, felt threatened by what they would have seen as the defection of Gibeon to the side of the Israelites. And apparently... Um, the decision was made to take this city that had gone to Israel as quickly as possible because it was a large and important city. And, and the scripture tells us that it was full of good fighting men that for all intents and purposes, although unconquered, remember, Israel did not conquer Gibeon. They entered into a, uh, an agreement with them. But as far as the other city-states were concerned, Gibeon is now Israelite territory. And they're allies with Israel. Not good. So these combined armies take up positions against Gibeon and attack it. And what did the Gibeonites do? They found a brave, handsome young soldier and sent him on the fastest speed and out to, to the Israelite camp to say, Help! They sent word to Joshua asking for his help. What's going on here? Well, first of all, when someone makes a move toward God, the enemy reacts. What happened here? The Gibeonites basically submitted themselves to the Israelite. And in the big picture, and I talked about this last message when we talked about uh, the, the whole Gibeonite deception thing. They basically agreed to do whatever the Israelites would require of them. And that would also require serving their God paying allegiance to their God. So that's a bothersome problem, not only for the other kings of Canaan, but for the enemy of our souls, Satan. Amen? 
Very often when people identify themselves with God or when they make a move towards God, the opposition arises. Have you ever, um, have you ever been working with someone, maybe witnessing to them, you've built a relationship with them, and it looks like, you know, as, in, in, over a period of time, they're making a move towards Jesus, and then something happens. And boom, it's like three steps back. Satan knows what's going on, doesn't he? And he's not going to sit on his hands and say, well, I guess I'll just lose that one. So, the enemy is reacting quickly here. The enemy realizes he's losing ground, and he's going to fight to keep it. And in this circumstance, the enemy has not only lost ground, he also realizes the potential that exists in this alliance between Israel and Gibeon. A potential that could create problems for the other city-states that remained yet, as yet unconquered in Canaan. See, Gibeon was not only an important city, but it was full of good fighting men. And now whose side are they on? So you get Israel and Gibeon fighting on the same side. That could cause real problems for the rest of us. Do you see what I'm saying? So it wasn't just a matter of the enemy losing territory, but the potential now that existed because Israel and Gibeon had entered into this treaty agreement. <coughs> and let, let's lay that over on the church for a moment, shall we? The enemy sees the potential that exists within the church. There is potential here, right? And he will do everything he can to keep that potential from being realized. You know what? Things are fine just like they are. We've got this nice little crowd and everybody knows each other. Why would we want to mess that up? And, and, and one of the things he likes to do is, well, he recognizes the potential. Let's see. Let's cause a little division. All right? Yeah, we're going to paint the church. I want gray. I want white. I think you should paint everything white. What? I'm leaving. Stupid stuff, it happens, doesn't it? And this, you know, so we cause the church to split over the stupidest stuff. Yeah. And not only does there potential, but sometimes little things begin to happen between people and within the congregation. Why didn't you say something about that? Or I didn't like the way you did that. Do you know what I'm talking about? And pretty soon we're not talking to each other. You know, people in the body of Christ who love each other, we're not talking to each other. And oh, then they come and they're here. And then there's this idea of, you know, here's Satan loves this hopelessness. Forget it. Forget it. You can't do this. Look how old you guys are. Look at all the things you need to do to your building. Do you really have the money to... You know what I'm saying? Or inflexibility. Listen, we've done that this way for 411 years and we're not changing now. But 
changing might help. No. And then there's prayerlessness. Listen, that's where it starts. I think it was John Maxwell that says, prayer is the fuse that lights the dynamite of God's power. And we need the explosive definition. Well, the Gibeonites did two things right. Number one, they confessed their need for help. Number two, they exemplified faith in God who had power greater than the kings of the Amorites. So they came to, to Israel and to Israel's God for help, and they exemplified faith in God who had power greater than... They, were, they had some things figured out, didn't they? Listen, they had no desire to reestablish a relationship with old friends. Those things and relationships they had chosen to separate themselves from by entering into a covenant with Israel and the nation, then through that nation, their God, through the God of Israel. This, this whole circumstance with Gibeon and the five kings and, and, and the fact that these five kings make war on them, this, it's a picture of what happens when the devil comes as a roaring lion in some overwhelming crisis that shakes our faith and makes us cry out, God, help me, why is this happening to me? We've all been there. If you haven't been, you will be. And so the, the question for me at this, part, at this point is this. Is there an area in your life where God's intervention intervention would make a world of difference? Or do we believe that God's intervention would make a world of difference in our church body and what he's called us to do? There was a sign on a manager's door that read like this, a crisis for you doesn't necessarily mean a crisis for me. But what that translates to is this, your problem isn't my problem. What a contrast that is to the ways of God. See, God's help is available to those who come to him and call upon him. God's help is available to those who come to him and call upon him. And we see God's heart towards us in that regard in the scripture. He says in Matthew, in Matthew 11, 28, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. <coughs> and in Psalm 50, verse 15, Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Then call on me when you are in trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. Call on me when you're in trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. Now, we, we kind of fall down on some of those points. We don't always call on God when we're in trouble. Well, Here's what generally happens. We try everything we can think of, and then when nothing works, we call on God. <laughs> and then he says, and I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. And we fall down there sometimes, too. Hey, I got through this one. I'm good. And we forget who, who delivered us. And then the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength always ready, always ready to help in times of trouble. 
So there are two key phrases in these verses, at least the first two that I read, and they're this. Come to me and call on me. Come to me, call on me. The reason the Gibeonites could call upon Israel was because they had entered into a relationship with them by covenant. And the reason they made a covenant with Israel was because they recognized the power of God. In essence, they had come to God. Come to me. Now when they are in need, they do call upon Israel and Israel's God. Israel would not have known of Gibeon's need and could not have helped them unless called upon, right? And the reason they could call upon was because they had already come to. And we need to step for a minute back to chapter 9 and look at how Gibeon came to Israel. Certainly, there was that element of deception when the Gibeonites first approached the leaders of Israel. But in the end, when the deception was found out, there's an attitude of complete surrender on the part of the Gibeonites. Chapter 9, verse 25. We, this is the Gibeonites speaking. <coughs> we are now in your hands. This is them speaking to Israel. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. They came unconditionally. They didn't say, well, listen, here's the deal. We'll surrender if you do this, this, and we've got, this has to be this way. You can't change this. No. They said, we are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. They came unconditionally. Isn't that really what God asks of us? I'm in your hands. Do with me whatever seems good and right to you. And how often, see, remember, come to me and then call upon me. How often do we call upon God, but we have not first come to him unconditionally? And then we wonder why God isn't rushing to our rescue sometimes. We called upon him, but we didn't come to him like we should come to him. You know, we want God to help us grow our church. Amen. So we call upon him. But have we come to him like we need to come to him? Are we willing to say, we're in your hands do with us whatever seems good and right to you. You know, I was reading um, Henry Blackaby when we were at our daughter's house in, in Eastern Oregon. She had Henry Blackaby's uh, devotional book up. And I was reading one day, and um, Henry Blackaby said, you know, we, we um, have a tendency in our prayers to share our desires with God. What we forget sometimes when we say, is to ask God, what is your desire? That's coming to him unconditionally. Instead of saying, listen, God, really, I'd like you to do this, 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 and that, and kind of change that for me. No, we say, God, what is your desire in this situation? How do you want to use me? We come to him unconditionally. Because sometimes I think, you know, we come to God, we call upon him, but we come to him with things like, 
I can't ask you to change or to sacrifice or to get involved or to pray or to give more. You see what I'm saying? We kind of have these little uh, addendums or caveats or something in there. Well, at this point now, we have a change of the story. So Gibeon's been attacked. They've come to Israel for help. Now we have a change of perspective. The, the focus now switches to Joshua and the armies of Israel. And verse 8 of our text seems to indicate that Joshua inquired of the Lord this time. Good idea, Joshua. Because, it's, because it says, God says to Joshua, I have given them, the five kings and their armies, I have given them into your hand. Boy, that's a pretty nice promise to have when you're going to war. Joshua was to rally his forces and go. God would do the work. The battle was to be the Lord's. So what happens? We obey. God does the amazing. We obey. God does the amazing. Joshua marched all night with his entire army and caught the Amorite forces by surprise the next morning. But listen to this. Joshua's army climbed 3,300 feet from Gilgal on the Jordan River to the Judean Plateau. <laughs> Any of you who've gone on a hike with that kind of elevation gain know what that feels like. And I don't know what they were carrying with them because you don't go to war just with your hiking boots on, right? 3,300 feet of elevation gain during the night when normally you're snoozing. So you've got to know that after a journey like that, they weren't in the very best shape to engage an enemy in battle. But Joshua had a promise. What was it? Oh, we just said it. What was the promise? I've given them into your hand. And in verse 10, God gets the credit. The Lord threw them, meaning the five armies, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great victory at Gideon. Who did it? God did it. Don't worry about an all-night hike with 3,300 feet of elevation gain. I've got this. Just do what I tell you. Just go. Okay. So the Lord threw the Amorites into confusion. They fled from Israel. But more than that, it says, Then God hurled large hailstones down from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than from the swords of the Israelites. Wow! See, much-needed assistance was received from God for folks who had made a tough trip just to get to the site of the battle. God knew that. He said, Go. You've made a treaty with the Gibeonites, honor it, I'll make sure the battle is won. And so the Israelites went, the battle was won. The Israelites did their part, God did his part. The amazing results of obedience. See, only in the power of God is there victory over the enemy. Only in the power of God is there victory over the enemy. The army of Israel needed to finish the job to make the victory complete. Because they had these guys on the run. 
And you know, you don't want them to regroup in the night and, and counterattack the next day. You don't want them to return to their cities and come up with another plan. The problem needs to be dealt with now. That's what's going on here. And Joshua, sensing the urgency to complete the conquest, asked for more daylight. And guess what? God did it. He extended the day. Verse 13 tells us that the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a full day. And we are also told that there has never been a day like it before or since. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Think about how the magnitude of what's happening here. Think about it. Um, you know, there's um, an urban legend that's gone around that says, yeah, some years ago, NASA scientists were predicting the location of the planets and, you know, so we can send up the moon, think, so we know where these things are in space, so when we send up uh, satellites and, and, and spacecraft, they're not going to be bumping into something at the wrong time. And so they're, they've got to figure out the calendar. <gasps> there's a day missing. And so they went back and they drove out. It's the day of Josh. No, it's a legend. They didn't actually do that. Sorry, sounds great. They didn't actually. Have, apparently, and I read this from Christian sources, there's no real way for them to figure that out. You'd have to have uh, an atomically accurate clock that we could turn to way back then, and they just didn't have them then. So we just have to believe that what God's word said is true. Right? And, you know, isn't it interesting with these um, miracles that God does, we're always trying to figure out some scientific explanation for them. Well, it wasn't really a miracle. Here's what happened. These forces came together, and this, you know, the, the sea parted, and the wind blew, and it was, a, it was a miracle. This was an incredible miracle. And, and you know, now, okay, so what happened there? Well, uh, First of all, it says the sun stopped. We know the sun didn't stop. It's just, it was, Joshua was asking what he deserved. And to him, it looked like the sun moon. But we know better than that now, don't we? And we know that the earth rotates on its axis. And they said, well, didn't God stop the rotation of the earth? And then other scientists say, well, yeah, if he did that, horrible things would happen. And other scientists say, well, maybe what he did was he just, he, he slowed the rotation of the earth. So instead of one rotation in 24 hours, there was one rotation at that time in 48 hours. We don't know. That's a lot of guesswork. Listen, God, if God can speak stars into place, don't you think he can do with the earth anything he wants? Anything. God did it. And the day was extended. That's what happened. So, God did it. Israel needed it. We don't know. By the way, we don't know the numbers. The, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know the numbers that were involved here with these five armies. We don't know. There might have been gazillions more of the Amorites than there were Israelites. We don't know. We do know they were facing a combined army of five kings. On top of that, they made a journey that should have worn them out just getting there. If I were Joshua, I would have said to God, listen, can we make the hike and then take a day to kind of regain our strength and then we'll get after these guys? But no, 
They didn't, so they needed a miracle. In fact, they needed two miracles. No, they needed three miracles. Do you remember what they were? First miracle, confusion. God sent the Amorites into confusion. Second miracle, from the sky came down giant hailstones. Third miracle, listen God, there's a lot of these guys and we've got to chase them down and take care of business because if we don't, they'll still be out there and we've got to fight them again. Could you extend the day? And that's the third miracle. God did it. It was a day like no other. And think for a moment of the impact that this might have had on the Amorites. Now they are thinking, this was a bad idea. In whatever language they spoke. And what do you think the Gideonites are thinking? Wow, are we glad we made a treaty with Israel? I'm glad we're on their side. Right? God was making quite an impact at this moment in time, wasn't he? And the scripture said that this thing with the extended day, however God did it, happened only once. One time. You know, I think God does that sometimes, this once in a lifetime kind of thing, because he wants to guard us again against Becoming dependent on miracles, but rather depending on a miracle-working God. Do you see the difference? It's a lesson we need to learn as we fight the battles involved in possessing the land that God has given us to possess. And then as we move beyond the text that Dean read this morning, <clears throat> we find that the five defeated Amorite kings are brought out of a cave which, in which they've hidden. And in, in verse 24 of chapter 10, Joshua summons his commanders, and he, he, he instructs them to put their feet on the necks of the five kings. And this ancient custom not only humiliated captives, but would also symbolize total victory. In fact, if you go back to... Um, what they call them, the hieroglyphics or petroglyphics or whatever they are, there are scenes of that happening, especially in Egypt with the pharaohs on a conquered king's neck, their foot on their neck. And we, we see this imagery in, in Psalm 1, 110, verse 11, where the psalmist writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Total victory. Conquered. Je Jesus quoted that passage of scripture in Matthew twenty-two forty-four, And Peter quoted it on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Man, I, I'm just thinking about the times that, you know, the enemy went down in flames on this day in Joshua's life. But think about the resurrection. <coughs> we did everything to beat this guy, and we still can. Down in flames. 
the sun and moon. You know, it's like you put Carmen on. Remember Carmen? And remember the song about the blue? Satan calls it blue. Is it blue? Is the dew still on earth? <laughs> and the grave says, don't worry, but do you know Bethlehem isn't there? And the conversation goes on and he says, oh no. Oh no. This is grave talking. Oh no. Somebody's messing with the stone. Boom. <laughs> Jesus is out of there. Spirit comes and fills God's people with his presence. Oh no! Boom. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your footstool for your feet. And there are great implications here for our warfare with our enemy. It's a little different scenario. But listen, folks, Satan has been defeated. He's been defeated. Jesus has given believers the authority to trample over the enemy's power. Luke chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Jesus speaking, he replied, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I have given you, my disciples, my followers, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. We're not talking about the real life thing. Those people that mess with snakes, they're mean. Okay? You mess with a rattlesnake or some other poisonous snake long enough, you're going to get hit. You don't mess with scorpions either. I have, he's speaking of demonic forces here. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing. See, only in the power of God was Joshua and the is people of Israel, the, the, the army of Israel, able to do what they did that day. Only in the power of God. <clears throat> only in the power of God can we do what he's called us to do. Colossians 2.15. Speaking of what Jesus did. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's a different miracle, folks. You know what that you know what that scene is, don't you? The public spectacle. Roman generals, when they would defeat an army, would have a big parade through the streets of Rome, and they would strip naked. The, the enemy that were now captive and their leaders and parade them through Rome. They would make a public spectacle of the defeated enemy. That's what it says Jesus did for the forces, the, the, the principalities and powers and forces of wickedness that work in high places. That's what Jesus did. He made a public spectacle of them on the cross. He showed them for what they were and he defeated them soundly. And if they didn't believe it when he died, they sure believed it when he rose from the dead. <laughs> that victory is ours. That victory is ours. 
just like it was for Joshua down that hill. We obey, God does amazing things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this incredible story. Thank you for that day that was like no other. Thank you for the victory that was won because your people trusted in you. Because the Gibeonites figured out that if they came to God and called upon God, they would get help. Thank you that the victory is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you that there are battles to be won in the power of God at work in and through and among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. There are victories to be won this week in the lives of kids, and we trust in our families through Vacation Bible School in the good news of Jesus Christ. And help us, Father, to live like victorious people, like joyful people, like grateful people, like Christ followers. Thank you for these folks and their faith and their belief and their trust. And Lord God, may we together move forward as a victorious army in the name of Jesus Christ to possess the land which you've given to us already. I have given them, they're in my hand, I've given them into your hand. Help us to believe that, Father. And bless us now as we go to celebrate together a couple that we dearly love and send out from this place. Thank you for the privilege of doing that. Bless our fellowship. May we be honored and glorified in all we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you for being here today. Go in the grace and peace of God and head to the fellowship hall and we're going to enjoy a meal together.